You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, if you would, turn open your Bibles to Matthew 18, where we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. So, fewer verses this morning than what we've been dealing with on a Sunday morning, and I am I'm thankful for that. I always appreciate when I can take fewer verses and just get my arms around them a little bit better. So if you would, follow along with me as I read for us, beginning in verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, on Monday, I happened to encounter a story that was a bit bizarre, but also very touching. The story was about how a five-year-old girl named Riley McNamara of Ashford, Connecticut, was standing near her front door one morning when a raccoon suddenly came up and attacked her and latched onto her foot. Obviously, the girl immediately cried out at the top of her lungs, which fortunately, her mother heard. So she comes out the front door, sees what's happening, and immediately reaches down with her hand, grabs the raccoon by the back of the neck. The raccoon's jaws let go. She used her free hand to open up the front door to the house to let her daughter in, and then she threw the raccoon into the front yard. And the reason I can tell you about this is because the entire event was captured on one of the the home video surveillance cameras. So you can actually go look that situation up. And if you do, one thing I think you will just marvel over, of course, is the incredible courage of the mother. And we know any number of things could have happened in that situation. The raccoon could have turned on the mother, could have clawed at her, could have sunk its teeth into her. But do you think any of that was going through her mind? Not at all. Because the moment she heard her daughter's cry, It was pure protective instincts from that moment on. And I want you to ponder that for a moment because as we move into today's passage, what do we notice? We notice how Jesus himself also speaks about the importance of protection. And he also shares a story about protection. And it's not a true life story like the one I just shared. It's a parable But it's an important story to to impart an important lesson 
which is a lesson about the kind of protective instincts that he wants to see developed among his people, among his children, especially as it pertains to protecting other Christians, to protecting one another. Hence, today's message is titled, A Call for Protective Instincts in the Church. A Call for Protective Instincts in the Church. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this before when you've been reading through the Bible, but one observation that's helpful to make is that God's favorite way of referring to his people is as children. And of course, we understand why this would be from the perspective of faith in Christ. We're told by the Gospel of John, right, that anyone who believes in Jesus has been given the right to become a child of God. And from that point forward, we then get to experience a profound reality where God himself is our Father. And so he cares for us. And he is inclined to hear our prayers and to supply what we need. But there's also another reason that I think he enjoys always referring to his people as children. And it is to highlight their weakness, their impotence, their state of humility, their lowliness, their immaturity, and their vulnerability. Now, no doubt, sometimes we convince ourselves that we are pretty strong, that we're not that weak, right? So we need these types of reminders. Even if we don't get these type of reminders, I think we can admit we're still going to get these types of reminders through just life itself, aren't we? And so whether it is that it's the flu or an injury or losing someone we love, we have moments when we are reminded about our severe limitations. And today we encounter one particular weakness that Christians face, one particular danger that they encounter. And what is it? It is being led astray away from God by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me say that again. It is being led astray away from God by the deceitfulness of sin. And of course, we know why this even occurs. As the Bible overwhelmingly teaches that though our sin has been paid for as Christians, and though the power of sin has been broken, the presence of sin still remains, doesn't it? And so here we are, still having to battle against the flesh, still having to fight against indwelling sin. And you know, it'd be one thing if it was only our desires that we had to deal with, right? But it isn't because we also have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And unfortunately, he, along with his demons, does a pretty good job at enticing us to sin by using the most effective bait possible, doesn't he? Specifically designed for our own unique weaknesses. And sadly, when we take the bait, the results are devastating. Soon, we are gripped by guilt, by shame, by fear. I trust you know what I'm talking about. You've had those moments where you have succumbed to temptation and then you just want to escape. You just want to run. You just want to hide. You isolate yourself from 
the community of God. You can even feel in your heart how it becomes harder and harder until eventually the joy of salvation is taken away and you are surrounded by what feels like nothing other than darkness. Well, Jesus understands that this happens. Again, he, he knows that this is something that his children face on a regular basis. And so here's Jesus speaking to his disciples in this passage. And ultimately, he says, men, here's what I want you to know that when this happens, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go after my children. I want you to rescue them. I want you to protect them. I want you to pursue them. And I want you to go out of your way to do whatever you can to make sure my children are far from sin and safe and walking with me. That said, keep in mind where this all started. I'd like to direct your attention back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples ask Jesus a question. They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They all wanted to know, like, who's the most revered? Who's the most worthy of honor? Is it Peter? Is it Paul? Is it James? I mean, Paul wasn't there at that moment. That was a test. But who is it? Which disciple? But then Jesus does something unexpected. He calls to himself a child, places the child in the midst of the disciples, and then uses this child as an object lesson as he gives specific qualities of someone who is great in the kingdom of heaven. And what were those qualities? Well, if you were with us last week, then certainly you'd remember that the first one had to do with humility. Jesus said to the disciples, guys, you must become like children. Again, this meant that they needed to recognize their insufficiency. It was that they needed to recognize their lowliness, that they needed to live completely and utterly dependent on God. But then after that, notice what else Jesus points out. Every other thing that Jesus mentions has to do with how Christians are to love and care for other Christians, other followers of Christ. And there were two things specifically mentioned. First, remember that Jesus told the disciples to receive other Christians. And this was really a call to care for other Christians, no differently than a gracious host would care for a guest that they brought into their home. But then secondly, he said this. He says, also, make sure you don't cause one of these little ones to sin. And remember how extreme of a picture that Jesus uses. He said it would be better for someone that he'd have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the deepest part of the sea than that they would cause one of his little ones to stumble. And it is obvious Jesus is not talking about physical children here, right? Because again, he speaks of little ones who believed in him. This is the defining element of them being children. They believe in Jesus Christ. But the emphasis, right, was on protecting other children of God from sin, right? Well, this week, Jesus has still got the same big idea in front of him, care within God's kingdom community. But notice the shift in that no longer is Jesus talking about not causing 
other people to sin, but rather what else? He talks about what to do for other Christians when they are caught in sin's grip. And so that's what we're looking at today. And as we do, I think our text can be broken into two helpful sections. First, I want us to notice the rule that Jesus provides for helping those who go astray. And then I want us to notice the reasons for helping those who go astray, right? So that's our outline today. The rule Jesus provides for helping those who go astray and the reasons for helping those who go astray. So the rule for helping those who've gone astray. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. I want you to understand see is a command. And not only is it a command, but in the Greek it's a command in the present tense. And so it has an emphasis on ongoing action. So Jesus is essentially saying, see, be watchful, be on the lookout, and stay watchful. And don't stop being watchful. A good picture might be a, a man who's in the crow's nest of a ship, and he's looking out for icebergs, right? I assume many of you have seen Titanic, right? you got the guy who's up there in the middle of the night while everybody else is like sleeping or dining or doing whatever else people do in the evenings, right? He's just scanning the perimeter. And all of a sudden he goes, iceberg right ahead right that's the kind of seeing that jesus is calling upon the disciples but what are they to be looking out for because it wasn't icebergs right they were to be looking out that they do not despise one of god's children you go well despise what do you mean by despise we hear that word a fair bit Keep in mind what it means to despise. Of course, some people think that despise means to hate, but that's really not the idea. Despise has more the idea of to look down upon or to care nothing for. So if you despise something, it's not that you have really strong negative feelings against it, right? It's just frankly that you don't really care about it. Certainly not enough to focus on it. So you ignore it because it's just not very high on your list of priorities. So Jesus is saying, look out that you never at any point look down upon my children. And there are many ways that we can do this. We can despise Christians in a variety of ways. Let me give you a few examples. We can despise Christians when we flaunt our liberty we spoke a little bit about this last week when we talked about 1 Corinthians 14. In the church in Corinth, you had Christians who felt it was okay to eat a whole bunch of different things, but then you had other Christians, newer Christians, or just Jewish Christians that are like, uh-uh. Like, I, I understand we're saved because of what Jesus has done in his sacrifice, but I still don't think I should touch this or touch that or eat this or eat that. Paul's encouragement to the Christians there was through love to serve the weaker Christians. 
In other words, his encouragement was use your freedom, not to simply throw your hands in the air and go, I don't really care how other people are affected by my choices. But use your freedom to serve those around you and encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Strengthen them. So that's one way we can despise Christians is by flaunting our liberty. Another way we can do this, though, is by looking down upon God's children who might be in a different social situation. James talks about this, right? The example being there's church going on. Some guy shows up, he's looking real suave, and, and, and all of a sudden, someone goes, hey, we got a special seat for you. You get to sit up front. You can see how well that goes here anyways, right? Like, nobody wants to sit up here by the pastor. Somebody else comes in, they're not looking, you know, too great. Maybe they got a, a torn up shirt. Maybe they got sweatpants on. I don't know whatever that equivalent would be back then, right? Well, we got a spot for you back there, Right? We can also despise Christians by withholding what they need. Again, this is dealt with in 1 Corinthians. Remember what was going on there. Communion had run afoul in a major way. You had a group of people meeting up. They were feasting. They were gorging themselves. Then another group shows up, and they're like, where's all the food? Paul's rebuke to them was this. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Social status was still kind of connected to this situation too. It was the poorer Christians that weren't cared for. And it made a mockery of the Lord's table. It did not show respect and honor to other Christians as those who are equals which all Christians are. We can also despise others for their age, though, can't we? Listen to Paul's encouragement, right, to Timothy, where he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Of course, the reason Paul needs to tell this to Timothy is because he knows being in leadership, the younger you are, the more you're going to have people say, I don't know about this guy. And so he says to Timothy, Because that's the natural inclination, you need to be especially mindful that you set the pace for the church, that you become an example to others in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You need to do everything you can to make sure that you are easy to respect. So there are all sorts of ways we can despise the church, but of course today we come across an especially significant way that we can despise God's church and God's people, and what is it? It is by becoming guilty of neglecting believers when they need critical spiritual help. Even today we can talk about how bad it is to abuse your children. We also talk about how bad it is to neglect your children. Those are kind of two different categories, but both like really bad and equally wrong, right? The bar is so much higher in the church than simply not abusing someone. (laughs) We are also called to go out of our way to care for those around us. And why? Well, now... 
we move into the reasons for helping those who have gone astray. And this is the foundation of Jesus' command now. And there are two reasons I want us to notice today. The first has to do with God's protective angels. The second has to do with God's protective will. First, God's protective angels. Or if you would prefer, God's guardian angels. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This definitely is the preeminent text in defending the idea that there are guardian angels. Are there guardian angels? There's some debate, but it would seem, I think, when you look at this, that yes, there are guardian angels. That said, there's a few things I want you to understand about them because there are plenty of bizarre ideas about angels today. So, let's just clarify some things. First, understand who these angels are not. They are not former loved ones watching down from above, but are created beings distinct from people. Angels were made before people were. They've been distinct, and they always will be distinct. Certainly at the point of death, people do experience a radical transformation because they go into the presence of God, and they do so as spirits, which is why Paul says that to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? But this is not an enduring reality because one day every person is going to have their body back. They are going to have a glorified body. And there will be a time when both material and immaterial will become one again. And certainly in that moment, we will then be not temporal beings, but eternal beings. And in that way, we'll be like angels, but we'll still be distinct from them. So that's the first thing I want you to understand about these angels. Secondly, also know this, we don't actually understand a lot about what these guardian angels do. We really don't. There's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. Even basic things are a mystery to us. Like, we don't know if every believer has their own angel or if one angel happens to guard a whole bunch of believers. So think of it like this. Like, we don't know if the angels are playing zone defense or if they're playing man-to-man. We don't know that. In Jesus' day, it was believed that every Jewish person had their own angel. But there's nothing in the Bible that would infallibly prove that idea. And when you look at Scripture, you notice how angels care for individual persons. But it also talks about how they care for individual churches and even for nations. And, of course, their work was very vast. Sometimes they would assist the Lord and the prophets as he gives revelation to his people. We also know they punish evil in this life from time to time. We also know they will assist the Lord on judgment day, gathering the nations before God. And we also know that they deliver messages, don't they? Which is something we are especially mindful of around Christmas time because we're reminded of the angel Gabriel, right? Even as you think about Gabriel, we just 
in terms of the big picture of angels, there were only two angels in all of the Bible that were ever mentioned by name, one being Gabriel, the other being Michael. That's right. So you only have two that uh, are mentioned. And we're not told exactly all of the functions, are we? Certainly we know they do a variety of things, as I just mentioned, but like, do their roles ever change? You ever think about that? Like, do the angels, do they wear multiple hats? Or are they just kind of given a job and that's what they're always going to do? Like, hey, you're a messenger angel. You're just always going to be a messenger angel. Or like, I don't know, halfway through the day, God gives another task. We don't know. Also, what's the structure like? Is there a hierarchy? We know Michael is called an archangel. What does that even mean? Do lower-level guardian angels report to higher-level guardian angels? We don't really know. Interesting enough, like if you look in different, um, you know, different Christian groups, some actually have uh, like a whole paradigm by which they classify this angelic hierarchy. What is that like? We don't really know, but we do know this. We know that the angels, these angels in particular that Jesus is speaking about, are always before the Lord. So even if there is a hierarchy, we also know this, that the angels have immediate and ongoing access to the Lord, and they report directly to Him. But maybe there's also, I don't know, like a meeting after the meeting? I don't don't know. And actually, as you think about the angels always being before the Lord, how about this? Like, how can they be helpful to us if they're always in the Lord's presence? Like, do they teleport to earth when they have something that they need to do? I mean, certainly we know that they move very, you know, very swiftly, but we also have never clocked an angel, so we don't know how fast they travel. Or do they actually stay in heaven because their work is more intercessory so that they see what's going on on earth and then they make appeals to God on our behalf? Perhaps. Nonetheless, this we can be sure of, since Jesus says it to his disciples, that God does indeed appoint angels to serve and watch over his people, his little ones. And even though we don't know all the specific ways that angels do that, it's such a significant reality that Jesus points to the disciples at that, is that they also should watch over and protect other Christians. Like, since God's attention is constantly on Christians, Our attention should also be on other Christians. Also think of it like this. Since every Christian is special to God, every Christian ought to be special to the church. And in fact, so special, right, of course, that he appoints angels to watch over them. And because of this, there's no place to disdain a single believer. So You could also think about it like this, though, that this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. So Jesus is saying, if the very angels of God's presence are concerned with the little ones, then how much more should fellow Christians also be concerned for one another? And to me, it's quite profound when you think about it, because in some way, we are working together with the angels to protect God's church. And so even though there are guardian angels... God also wants there to be guardian Christians. 
How would that change your perspective when you get out of bed in the morning? You wake up, you're like, I'm a guardian Christian. But we are. Or certainly God wants us to be. So that's the first reason for helping those who have gone astray, God's protective angels. Now let's consider God's protective will. And jump ahead to verse 14, if you would. Look there. Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Hence why I say God's protective will. Because God's will is that none should perish. In fact, God does not wish or desire or delight in the death of any person, not just his own people, right, but, but all people. Now, some people stumble over this type of a statement because they think, well, but if God is sovereign, then what, in what real sense can it be said that he doesn't desire that any should perish because some do indeed perish, right? And if God doesn't want them to perish, then why do some still perish? How is it possible that God does not get what God so desires? But friends, that is an over-simplistic way of thinking about the will of God. And this is where you ultimately have to just surrender that if you're going to believe what the Bible believes, there's going to be apparent conflicts at times, right? Theologians have helpfully distinguished God's will in two different categories at a minimum. At times they have spoken about God's sovereign will or hidden will or decretive will. But then they've also spoken about his revealed will or his preceptive will. One will, God's sovereign will, has to do with things that God directs of which he ensures the result. But then there are times when the Bible speaks about God's moral will which connect to his character. That would be his revealed or preceptive will. And today we see God's moral will on display in this statement. And friends, this is appropriate. It's appropriate that God does not delight in the death of any person because he, as a holy God, grieves sin. And he always grieves sin's consequences as well. And so we could even say this, it would be improper or inconsistent with God's character if the opposite were ever true, if he ever delighted in someone's death. But he doesn't. And this is not the only place that we see such a statement. Consider 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, Christian, lay this to heart. God is not cold or indifferent or apathetic about those who perish. Nor should we be. God does not gloat over their end, nor does he rejoice in their condemnation. Is he willing to punish sin? Yes. Will he receive glory by punishing sin? Yes. But is there a real sense in which he does not delight to condemn someone? And I would say yes. And I think that's illustrated very well by the story. And so now let's think about the story that illustrates the point that Jesus makes. So Jesus begins the story by saying in verse 12, what do you think? And I'm just going to pause for a moment. Let's just reflect on that. What do you think? Jesus actually does this four times in the gospel of Matthew. And I think there's actually uh, something helpful for us to learn. Like God does not merely 
Jesus does not merely want to impart information, but he always wants his people to reflect on that information and to chew on it and to process it. And friends, frankly, that's the only way you arrive at having convictions that you build your life on. There are an endless amount of ideas in the world. People love new ideas. They're trying to consume more ideas every single day, right? But a lot of times, it's just a quick thought, and then we move on. It doesn't really change who we are. But that's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want just people filled with knowledge. He wants people that are building their lives upon the foundation of his word and putting it into practice. And so he wants them to chew on it. And I think that as we disciple other people, there are definitely times where we need to be reminded we need to spend more time asking questions than imparting information. Like, is the person you're with, do they actually comprehend what you're teaching them? Are they owning it? Is it becoming theirs? Or are they just becoming parrots? Okay, so that was just extra. Now to the story. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. It's a simple story, isn't it? You have a shepherd, and the shepherd is out there keeping watch over his hundred sheep, which would have been an average-sized flock, would have been... Certainly a manageable flock for one person to look out for. And I imagine he probably finds some things to do. Maybe he takes a nap on a tree. I don't know, right? But at a certain point, all of a sudden the shepherd goes, I probably should just do a quick head count, make sure everybody's here together. I don't know. Like the more kids you have in your family, the more you comprehend this. We're at five now, so sometimes that happens. Like, right, you look up, they're all there. You look down, you look up, you're like, okay, where is that one, right? That's what the shepherd does here. And notice his impulse, right? He isn't like, well, at least the 99 are safe. Great. That one sheep burdens his heart so much that he resolves that he is going to go find it. So what does he do? We're told that he determines to leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. And this is maybe a simple but also an important point to, to, to just show you. Maybe you're familiar with a song called Reckless Love. It talks about how Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. And you listen to the song, you kind of get the impression that it's like, he just like doesn't think anything for the 99, but he's still going to go get the one. But listen, he still cares about the 99. He still loves the 99. He still wants to make sure the 99 is safe. So he puts them in a place where they will be safe, on a mountain, where they have better perspective and where they can see if they're being snuck up on, right? I mean, what good is it if he gets the one, but then he loses 5, 10, 15 more? There's nothing reckless about God's love. Those he saves, he secures and keeps safe. Yet he, in his power and his compassion, still is able to rescue the one. And so the shepherd sets off. And understand, right, the terrain that the disciples would have had in mind. Like, we're not dealing with the plains of North Dakota here. 
We can go out on a clear day, and it doesn't even need to be an elevated location. If there's like a tower sticking up like 10 miles down the road, we're like, hey, that's where the cell tower is. That wasn't their landscape. There were mountains, there were ravines, there were caves, difficult terrain. The sheep could have been anywhere. But this by no means is a defeater for the shepherd. It doesn't prevent him from going, does it? And he sets out. And we know that he is, he is excited to do this. He is willing to do this because what happens when he finds the sheep? We're told that the joy that filled his heart was so much that he had more joy over that one sheep being rescued than the joy he had for the 99 that didn't need to be rescued. Now, friends, don't think this means he didn't love the 99 just as much, but this is to say that there is a special joy, a distinct joy that God has when he sees one of his sheep rescued and returned to the fold. And of course, that's what makes this story so beautiful, right? The fact is that we know who the shepherd is. The shepherd is God. In fact, it's one of the, it's one of the most common ways that in the Old Testament you would hear God referred to. That he was Israel's shepherd. He was his people's shepherd. And even today, that Old Testament imagery is so rich and so powerful with us that if you ask any person what their favorite psalm is in the Bible, what are they likely to tell you? Oh, Psalm 23. For the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. All this beautiful imagery. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And not only is God the shepherd, but what do we discover about Jesus? That Jesus is the shepherd. And not only is he a shepherd, but he is the good shepherd. Jesus would say to his disciples later on, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Friends, that's why we're here today, right? Because Jesus, the good shepherd, he pursued you. He chased after you when you were far from him. Now, interesting to note, right, it, in Luke 15, we see the same type of story shared, but notice it's a very different context. In Luke 15, Jesus is addressing scribes and Pharisees, and the story is used as an indictment against their calloused care for God's people. It's, in many senses, much more evangelistic in its emphasis in Luke 15. Here, it is clearly on the care of God's children, of his people. It's focused on care within his church, his covenant community. And this was so important, right, that, that God's people be cared for, that not only 
is Jesus the good shepherd, but what is his instruction given to those that would represent him when he would go to be with the Father? What is his encouragement to even the apostles as they would take up the yoke of serving the church? John 21, just a beautiful picture. Some of his last words, right, given to Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Then Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The work in the church has always been and must continue to be caring for the flock of God. And we can only understand that Jesus took what, or Peter took what Jesus was saying to heart because later on, as he spoke about those that were appointed over the churches, the next generation of leaders beyond him, what does he say to them in 1 Peter 5? I exhort the elders among you. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, there's just a continued line of responsibility that is articulated to shepherd. And it starts with God. We see Jesus being the good shepherd. It goes to his apostles. It then goes on to the elders. But do you think that that's it? No, because still the flock itself is to exhibit shepherding care in each other's lives and watching over for one another. Galatians 6.1, brothers, Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression... This is his message to the church, to believers in Galatia. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And when you consider all that we've looked at today, of course, the question then becomes, well, that's great, but how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you run after people who are caught in sin? How do you make sure that you pursue them, that you go out of your way to help them and bring them back to safety? Well, friends, this is where we will find ourselves next time we come together. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And there's so many instructions here. But today, consider how we're looking at the motivation for this vigilant spiritual care where next time we look at the method of how to live this out in the context of the church. Be that as it is, however, church, here's what I hope you understand. You and I have a responsibility to deeply care for each other and that one another, that we are all walking in holiness and pursuing Jesus Christ. You may have noticed, but one thing that has happened so much in the church is there is very little emphasis on sin. Show up. Have a good time. We want to see you 
Enjoy your experience. But very little emphasis on how you radically fight sin as a community. People are afraid to even bring up the concept of sin altogether because that would be negative. But friends, our joy can only increase in the Lord as we continue to turn to Him, being refreshed in His grace, turning away from sin, and walking in obedience to His Word. That is His desire for our lives, for our good, and we are to encourage one another in that. I just want you to imagine, what would the church look like if people took to heart what Jesus is saying here? I venture to say it would look radically different. But we also kind of understand why we don't do this, right? Because if we were honest, like this is super uncomfortable. By and large, the American church today is like, hey, my relationship with Jesus, it's between like me and him. We're good, right? I have a, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And you know what? To that I would say, yes, you're right. When we enter a relationship with Jesus, it is a genuinely unique personal relationship that we have. But just because it's a personal relationship doesn't mean it's a private relationship. You get what I'm saying? The moment we choose to follow Christ, God calls us into a family. And he doesn't want us as isolated Christians because you know what? When we live life that way, we are incredibly vulnerable. We are open to attack. But friends, when we remain in the company of other Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to say, like, I'm going to care about you so much that when you start to to go off track, I'm going to come after you. Like, that is a special place to be. And yes, again, it's uncomfortable. Not only uncomfortable from the standpoint of the person who's actually going to the other person, but one who's actually saying, like, I want to live under accountability. I want to live with transparency. And friends, that's one of the reasons that we care so much about church membership. There's no way that you can possibly live out what Jesus is saying apart from church membership. Church membership is a time when we actually say, okay, Okay, I care so much about walking with Jesus that I want you to speak into my life. And when I go astray, I want you to tell me about it. And you know what? I care about you so much that I'm going to do the same for you, right? Membership formalizes and articulates that commitment that we love each other enough to speak the truth to each other even when it's uncomfortable. And friends, we must. We must. Because as Jesus says, this is for our own spiritual health. But we could also come up with another explanation for why this is so important. Because as the church grows in holiness, as the church is built up in purity, then all of a sudden it becomes all the more a radiant light in a dark world where people see, indeed, the glory of God is among us. Amen? Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.